Pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for a new day that you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to give you praise and worship, and thank you for the good things you've brought into our lives. As we worship together, love each other, spend time enjoying the people that you've brought into our lives, may we reflect you just a little bit better today than we did yesterday. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, you know, I'm, I'm aware of your circumstances uh, in terms of, actually, I've been in New York way, way, way longer than you were allowed to have worship in school uh, buildings. Uh, that's something that didn't exist ever in New York until eh, about 13, 14 years ago. So I, I'm aware of the, the difficulty of uh, the circumstances and this week's ruling and all that kind of stuff. And as I'm watching all of you talk together this morning and listening to some of your stories, um, a, a, uh, as we were worshiping over there, a, a Mary Oliver poem came to mind. If you know Mary Oliver, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, uh, happens also to be a believer. That's recent in her life. Um, but her, her poem, The Journey, came to mind. I don't know if any of you know that poem or not. It goes like this. One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. I mean, already you got to like the poem that starts like that. You know? One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, mend my life. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. I always think of mothers when I think of that section. <laughs> One day you knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. So the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible. But it was already... Late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, ah, this is the key. Little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. It's one of my favorite poems of hers. I always take instruction when a poem comes into my mind. I got a bunch of them memorized, all but my own. I've never been able to memorize my own. I can't figure that out. But, but when they come into mind, I thought, well, why, why did this poem come into mind this morning? One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, that the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, little by little, little by little, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Now I know why that came to mind. There is, in fact, 
a culture in this church that didn't exist before. There is a unity that is observable that didn't exist before. There is a collective voice of people who have been paying attention and the stars are burning through the sheets of clouds and there's a new voice which you have recognized as your own as you stride deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. It seems to me like you've been at a turning point over the last couple of years and maybe even having to switch facilities has something to do with all of that. But you really seem to have this identity that I didn't see before, which, frankly, is kind of cool. It really is. It's like, whoa, I think God's going to end up blessing this. You, you seem to be at this kind of critical stage in your life as a church that probably a lot of us get in as individuals. I like uh, the, how Dante began the Divine Comedy. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke at a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Um, I've felt that way before, probably trying to figure out with the the um, decisions of the Second Circuit this week. You guys are probably thinking that. Yeah. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. God, what do you want us to do? Do we go to the school? Do we not? Do we not? In fact, I'm not. Where are we Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> the new venue. Yeah, it, it's, you know, um, this morning I want us to talk about, uh, again, three different stories from the time of Jesus. And, and this is also three stories of people who were at a creek key critical point in their lives where decisions had to be made. Kind of in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. And all three times, ironically, interestingly, Jesus gives the same instruction. The first is in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has just sent out the 72 by 2. When the lawyers show up, life always gets interesting, generally complicated when the lawyers show up. One of them had a question. He said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus, as was his way, answered the question with a question. Did you ever notice that about Jesus? He never makes anything simple. You know, it makes you think. Answers a question with a question. He says to the lawyer, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, do that, and you'll live. But now the lawyer, pressing his luck, as lawyers sometimes do, said to Jesus, I don't mean to pick on lawyers, really. Some of my best friends are lawyers. I don't tell lawyer jokes. Honest, I don't. So the lawyer, pressing his luck, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, as was his way again, tells a story in reply. He says, this guy was headed down the mountain toward Jerusalem and Jericho, and he got to this desolate place where there was nothing but burned-out cars and stray engine blocks, and he was mugged and left for dead. This is the New York version of the story. And a priest came by, but he was pressed for time. And a Levite came by, but he had a budget to balance. And the poor guy by the side of the road was not having a real good day. But then the Samaritan came by, who understood something about pain and suffering the priest and the Levite did not understand. And he chose to have compassion on the man. And he bandaged his wounds, risking AIDS. And he put him on his donkey, risking a lawsuit should he fall off. And he paid for his medical care without government assistance. And Jesus said, now that's my idea of a neighbor. 
Now, I don't know how that makes you feel. That makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. Because if I'm to take Jesus seriously, I think he's telling me my neighbor is just about any human being with whom I come in contact. Let me tell you a little bit about my neighbors on Long Island. (laughs) I have one neighbor who swats flies outside. I've been watching him do this for over two decades now. Now, if I'm in my house and I got a fly in my house, I have a right to swat the fly. He's in my house. It's my space. But when we're outside, isn't this not the fly's house? Right? But nope, he's out there every evening swatting flies, all for like from the, as soon as it gets warm until it gets cold again. I have another neighbor who, <laughs> she stands in the middle of the street and yells at cars to slow down. She's a, she's a driver for UPS, a large, formidable woman. You know, cars do drive far too fast on our block. It, we're in East Islip, South Shore, Suffolk County. Um, but I'm thinking the middle of the street is not the best place to tell them so. But she gets, I mean, she gets right out on the street and slow down. And, boom, man, trust me, they slow down. We had a neighbor for years who usually got into the house before he fell down drunk, usually. And way too often he'd be lying in the front yard yelling at my kids to, help him in the house. And, then, you know, my kids were little at the time. It's not a good thing. You know, all that, and I live in a supposedly nice New York neighborhood. Kathy and I had been in our house in Long Island for a year. This is back in the 80s. We'd been in the house for a year and had not yet been greeted by one single neighbor, which is kind of Long Island. I mean, no hi, how you doing, no cookies, no nothing. I mean, nothing. And we'd come from upstate where people were generally friendly. So after about a year, uh, one Saturday, I decided to get into the spirit of the neighborhood, and I was in the backyard putting up a six-foot stockade fence around my property, (laughs) when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there stood my next-door neighbor. She spoke. She had a voice. It was amazing. She said, you're not going to attach that fence to my fence post, are you? (laughs) She looked down, saw my post hole already dug, and she left without another word. I was sorely tempted to attach my fence to her fence post. I just gave a little kick instead. <laughs> Long Island. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things we discovered after being there a while is, um, you know, Long Islanders, once they get to know you, they, they want to make sure you're going to stick around because nobody stays on Long Island unless they were born there or born in Brooklyn. It just seems that's the rule. And so when they find out you're going to stay around, they actually completely open their lives to you, which is, is utterly amazing. It, uh, we became really close with those people over the years. They used to keep our dog when we were gone. They'd take my son fishing in the Great South Bay because I was a crappy father. I didn't like to fish. Um, and you already know I forced him to go to Mets games. So, um. And I'll never forget the day she came out in the yard. It was uh, 15 years ago next month. Early in the morning, I was headed to work, and she came out, and I knew something was wrong, and she said our son, Mark, died last night. He was 35, two kids, had had a heart attack. And I said, wow, I'm so, so sorry. And she said, it's a terrible thing to have your child die before you. And I said, I can only imagine. And, um, you know, it's not much, but every year, about this time, I start thinking about Mark. And every year, except I think a couple, I don't think we've remembered it every single year. But on the anniversary of his death, we've seen a, we've seen a, uh, a card to Marty and Bev, his parents. And in the card, we'll tell some memory we have of Mark, maybe watching him play with the kids or being out at a ball game with him or, or something, and just some little memory to 
let them know we're still thinking about him. And, you know, it's not much, but it feels like the neighborly thing to do. Really, that's all I think it means to be a neighbor. The lawyer wanted to know who his neighbor was. Jesus told him his neighbor was just about anybody who needed him. The lawyer's response is not recorded. So we go to the second time where Jesus encounters people who are at that turning point in life where they're having to decide how they're going to live and what they're going to do. It's the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We call it the story of the rich young ruler. I happen to be with my buddy who had the $14 million yacht when he sold that yacht, the yacht actually not being big enough. He is buying a $22 million fed ship. Um, And he sold it to this 39-year-old guy who's obviously made a lot of money. And when he asked this guy why he was buying the yacht, he was a a city resident, um, uh, Upper West Side, actually. Um, When he asked him why he was buying the yacht, he said, because I'm rich and I'm bored. And so it was with this second young man who comes to Jesus. He's rich and he's bored. And he says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the law. He illustrated with a few choice offerings from the Ten Commandments. And then he added an interesting phrase to it. He said, I want you to love your neighbor as you love your own self. An interesting phrase. I want you to love your neighbor as you love your own self. I was flying home from uh, California a few years ago, and there was a guy on the flight with me who was an author of a famous series of books. If I told you the names of the books, you would recognize them. You probably have one or two of the books in your house. Guys made a lot of money on the books. And he wanted everybody on that flight to know he was the author of those books. He's telling the flight attendants he's the author of the books. Just give me your address. I'll send you a copy of the books. And, you know, I mean, I, I know how he feels. I remember when my first book came out, I was all proud and excited. I mean, to see my name there in print, and it wasn't self-published. You know, it was like, neat, this is cool. And But, you know, after a while, and your books, you know, have been on shelves and they're remaindered back to you and you know it's not nearly as exciting any longer um had eight or nine books out i guess at at this point and so i i got it you know it's like okay i I get your excitement about your books i like my books but this guy was he was over the top absolutely over the top um and i knew that when he sat down next to me and on his suspenders were pictures of the books Pictures of the covers of the books right there on the buckle of the suspenders. Okay, so I looked down at his briefcase, and there's a brass nameplate on the briefcase with his name of the town in which he either lives or works in in, uh, California. And then the name of the street on which he either lives or works. And the guy either lives or works on self-esteem way. (laughs) Could you imagine one of those in New York? Yeah, I live between 5th and 6th on self-esteem way. <laughs> no, that's not ever going to be in New York or anywhere on the East Coast. That could only be in California. <laughs> Would you want to live on self-esteem way? You know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with the concept of self-esteem. We Americans have kind of gone overboard with this idea of self-esteem. You know, I mean, we we think that our kids should not ever experience any failure ever, ever in life. So, you know, we give them a, a give them a trophy no matter what happens. They show up, they get a trophy. They show up late, they get a special trophy. <laughs> you know, I, and uh, Peggy Noonan uh, used to be the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and first George Bush. She writes a column every Saturday in the in the journal, and she wrote uh, at the, the time of the last presidential election. She said, "There's way too many politicians now in their 30s and early 40s." 
who grew up in the self-esteem generation, and they don't know what they don't know. No one's ever told them what they're bad at. And someone needs to tell them quickly before they decide to run for vice president. Not that she was focused on any one individual. Uh, <laughs> and she is a Republican, too. Uh, self-esteem. You know, not that there's anything wrong with self-esteem, but what if you should not esteem yourself so highly? You know, I, I was flying home from Florida when I was doing video work for the television network. I, I, uh, I was one of the on-air hosts. In fact, somebody came up to me last night, said they used to watch me in the middle of the night. We were on 70 different markets in the U.S. in the middle of the night. And our major job was basically to put people back to sleep who could not sleep in the middle of the night. We had five on-air hosts, and I was always told I was the best <laughs> at putting people back to sleep, which you know, I, I took some great pride in. So, so we're flying home. I, I'm flying home from, from California, and I, or, or Florida in that case, and I knew my family had borrowed my car. Um, and so I called home, and I said, hey, guys, if you don't mind, before I get home, take my car and leave it at the Islip Long Island Airport. Uh, parking's free if you're a town resident. And my son, Jonathan, I think he was... Uh, probably in college at the time, he said, Dad, you know, we'll, we'll pick you up. I mean, you know, we always pick you up. And I said, yeah, right, and you guys are always late. I mean, I'm always standing out front for like 15, 20 minutes waiting for you to pick me up. I don't feel like waiting for you to pick me up, so take the car back to the airport, all right? Okay. So I get into Philadelphia to make the connection to Islip, and, uh, and I get a, a call on my cell phone, and it's Jonathan. And he said, Dad, we kind of ran into a problem taking the car back to the airport. We, as we were taking the cars back, we kind of accidentally filled one of the gas tanks in one of the cars with diesel fuel. And I said, ooh, that's not a good thing. Um, I'm sorry you did that to your car, buddy, but I still expect my car to be at the airport when I get back in an hour and a half. And he said, yeah, Dad, it was your car we filled with diesel fuel, and I lost it. I said, I expect a car to be at the airport when I get back in an hour and a half. I expect my car to be repaired and in the driveway 24 hours from now. You got it? And I hung up the phone. I mean, really, seriously. A little bit of grace would have gone a long way. It's an honest mistake, but no. Now, the last thing on earth I needed was self-esteem. What I needed was a swift kick in the tail. But notice Jesus does not say to this young man, I want you to esteem your neighbors as you esteem yourself. He said, I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, self-love is, in fact, very, very difficult. Self-love is, first of all, harnessing your strengths. You know, we all have strengths, things we're better at than anybody else. We're told that. We learn that. We intuitively figure that out as we go further and further in life. And you have to learn to harness those strengths to something greater than yourself. Think Abraham Lincoln or, or Mother Teresa. You think, think of yourself as a workhorse, maybe, a, a Percheron or a Clydesdale. You know, if, if you just put that horse in your backyard and leave it alone, the horse is just going to, these are big workhorses. They're going to tear down your fences and rip up your grass. They're, they're good for nothing. But if you harness them and put the bit in the mouth, well, then they can pull the Budweiser wagon. You know, they can pull just about anything. Well, self-love is, first of all, harnessing your strengths. It's finding out what you're good at and then harnessing it to something greater than yourself. In fact, the, the greatest leaders all have two paradoxical strengths, if you've ever noticed this. They all have incredible confidence and great humility. The truly great leaders have both those two things together, things that are, rarely do you see them together. Again, Mother Teresa, um, Abraham Lincoln, 
you know, the people with incredible confidence, they know they've got a message that has to be heard, but they speak it out of great humility. Well, self-love is, first of all, nurturing those strengths. Self-love is, second of all, identifying what your weaknesses are. Now, we happen to live in a culture, because we are in a culture of self-esteem, that we don't ever tell people what their weaknesses are. You know, Now, occasionally, some of you might have a boss who has no difficulty telling you what your weaknesses are. And again, you do live in New York, so you know, in New York, it's definitely more common. In Colorado, everybody's way too nice. Nobody's ever honest. And of course, it's worse in the South, if you grew up in the South like I did where people talk behind your back about five seconds after they've left you, but they'll never tell you to your face what's wrong with you. So how do you determine then where your weaknesses are? Well, you have to listen carefully to what people do not tell you about yourself. You have to listen to the silences, because in the silences, you determine what your weaknesses are. So, like, no one ever tells me that I'm a really warm and fuzzy person the first time they meet me, that I just make them feel incredibly comfortable. And that, in fact, what I usually hear is like, you know, two or three months later, wow, you're really a nice guy. <laughs> so, now, you know, you have to listen, not, you know, you listen between the lines and, and, you know, under the tone and you realize, huh, I must come off as some really cold SOB when I first meet people. I, and, you know, I speak, the church I speak at in, in Colorado is a church about 3,500 and so, uh, and I preach about once a month there, um, not on staff. Senior pastor is a good friend of mine. I would, we would kill each other if I was actually on staff. But, um, I, but I do preach about once a month. And, and people always say, wow, you're, you know, you're so transparent and you seem so authentic from the pulpit. And then we're out in the, in the hallway and you just walk right past us. And it's like, oh, gee, yeah, this is a problem I've had for like a long time and I'm probably not going to get rid of it. No, no one will tell me directly that they will just not ever affirm how warm and fuzzy I am when they first meet me. They realize, well, they, you kind of got to get to know him for a while, and then you realize, well, actually, the guy's real. At least I, well, yeah, people tell me that, so it must be so. To, to figure out where your strengths are, you've got to listen to what people tell you, and to figure where your weaknesses are, you've got to listen to what people do not tell you. It's hard work, harder work than this wealthy young man wanted to do. When you're wealthy, you generally don't have to do that kind of work. You already have power, so people have to pay attention to you. So he left. Left. Probably went out and bought himself a $14 million yacht, I suppose. So then we come to the last passage where people are making a major shift, major change in their lives. They've got to make a decision what they're going to do. And again, the subject is the same. It's the 22nd chapter of Matthew, and it's Jesus' very last day of public ministry. It's the last time he's meeting with the crowds at large. After this, he's only going to be meeting with his 12 disciples, just with his tight crew. This is the last time he's meeting with a big bunch of people, and it's like a press conference. It really has a press conference atmosphere. All these Jewish leaders have gathered together. They've all got questions. They're going to trick Jesus. They want to capture him. They want to put him in prison, so they're going to catch him saying something that's wrong by the Jewish law. And it has a press conference atmosphere. So the lights come up in the White House press room. And the first reporter asks a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus gives this politically astute reply. He says, well, give Caesar what's Caesar's. Give God what's God's. I mean, you get the benefits of Caesar. You're using his money. You're using his coinage. So pay him what you owe him. Simple, simple question. So then comes the second question of this last press conference of Jesus. And the second question is asked by an idiot reporter from the first century equivalent of the National Enquirer. 
Um, because it really is. The guy asks a question about multiple marriages and the resurrection. You know, if, well, if you if you marry somebody and your wife dies, and then you you uh, you marry another person, and then that person dies, and you marry somebody else and they die in heaven, who are you married to? It was just the stupidest question. And as Jesus answers the guy, you get the feeling like Jesus feels like he's trying to explain the meaning of life to a little neck clam. You know, you can just see him just rolling his eyes, and says to the guy, um, first of all, let's kind of point out the fact that you are a part of a religious sect that doesn't even believe in a resurrection, you know, and, and, uh, and then, you know, goes on and, and answers the guy's question. But then we come to the very last question of the last day of the last press conference. It's the last public question Jesus has ever asked. And the timing's incredible. I mean, you know, you've got to understand this timing. It's the very last public question he's ever asked, and it's asked by an honest reporter. And he asks a question, which of the laws is the greatest? And I think there's a reason this is the last question asked. And I think there's a reason Jesus gives the answer that he's giving, because I think it's, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, look, the entire Old Testament, all the years before this, thousands of them, they're all boiling right down to this, to the answer to this last public question. And everything that's going to come after this, Christianity, the whole new covenant is going to spring forth from the answer to this question. It's kind of like the skinny part of an hourglass, you know, where the last bit of sand trickles through. This, the entire Old Testament's coming down to this, and the whole New Testament's going to come out of this. He says, which of the laws is the greatest? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, there's no surprise to this answer. It's exactly what all the Jews expected him to answer. Because that, to them, is how they began every one of their religious meetings, with those two laws. They quoted them aloud. And then Jesus says something that blows them away. He says, on this are all the law and the prophets based. And this just blows them away. Because to them, the sum total of religion was the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And those laws were not enough for the Jews. They wrote more. Go figure. Why? Because religion has always done that. Religion always demands to be codified. Religion always is searching for who has the power, who's in, and who's out. And the only way for us to determine who has the power and who's in and who's out is to create more and more laws. That way we can clearly say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I have power, you don't have power. It's not anything Jesus taught, not anything God endorsed. 613 laws of the Old Testament, those are pretty much just to prepare the way for Jesus. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, it ain't about that. I mean, these guys had spent their entire lives studying these 613 laws. And, you know, and a lot of us, we're no different. We think Christianity is all about believing the right thing, you know? I mean, that's how it was when I was growing up. It was all about, do you believe exactly the right thing? Because if you believe exactly the right thing, you're allowed to be a part of this church. Never mind you're a jerk. You know, do you believe the right thing? It's not much different than these people. So they've studied these 613 laws. They've written more because that's how they can maintain their power. And Jesus comes along and says, it's not about that. And it's the last answer to the last question he's ever asked publicly. He says, it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. 
All the laws are based on that. And Matthew tells us there was dead silence. Now, this is a press conference. Everybody there is like an angry reporter. They've got questions as long as the sleeve on their shirts, and now they are speechless. So Jesus starts asking them questions, which I love, which they can't answer. And they recognize the truth. Being a follower of Jesus is unbelievably simple. It is incredibly simple. It is, in fact, devastatingly simple. Love God, love your neighbor. They got it. It was that simple. They also got that it was, in fact, the hardest thing you will ever do. So it was my wife who filled my gas tank with diesel fuel. She's headed out to the airport, and she can't get any of the kids to go with her. Um, JL's out with her boyfriend, and Jonathan is, I forget, I, oh, he had to go to work. Um, and Jana, our youngest, had just gotten her driver's license. And Kathy said, you know, you've you got to go with me to take Dad's car out to the airport. And she said, I, I don't want to go with you. I don't have time to go with you. I'm supposed to meet everybody at the mall, and it's going to take 10 minutes. I don't have 10 minutes. It's always interesting to me when you have a kid who's exactly like you. You know, it's payback time, I think. So they're having this big argument, and they, they get to the, air, to the to gas station. And Kathy, before she knew what she'd done, had put three gallons of diesel fuel in the car. And so she called Jonathan, who called me. That turned out to be really helpful. And... Uh, so this construction worker from Long Island who'd spent the, the, uh, the day working in the city saw what happened, came over to her and asked if that was what happened. And she said, yeah. And he said, wow, it's um, actually pretty hard to do that because the nozzle doesn't fit. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, you know, but he said, it's not the end of the world. You can't drive the car, though. And he helped her push it off to the side until our mechanic could come and pick it up and he said, hey, it's not the end of the world. She seemed really upset. And she said, yeah, well, my husband's so angry, he doesn't even want to come home. And the guy said, well, ma'am, with all due respect, I think that's your husband's problem. So he goes back to his truck, and, and then he comes back and hands her an envelope. And so she's locking up the car, and she opens the envelope. And inside are two $50 gift certificates to one of my favorite steakhouses on Long Island, Tellers, which is a very good steakhouse. And uh, Kathy turns around to thank the guy. He's gone. Gone. It cost uh, $96 to repair my car. It was, in fact, in my driveway 24 hours later. After those two $50 gift certificates, I was uh, $4 ahead of the game. And, oh, yeah, I learned a really important lesson in the process, that somewhere on Long Island there is an anonymous construction worker who understands a whole lot more about what it means to be a neighbor than I do. You know, being a follower of Jesus is incredibly simple. It really is. It's not thousands of rules and regulations. It's just loving God and loving your neighbor. It's simple, but it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And I got to tell you, watching you with each other last night and again this morning, particularly kind of standing back the side and just watching, you're a church that's learned how to love. You're loving each other pretty remarkably. And I think as you continue to do that for the new people who come in, you know, and that can be a downside when you're a really tight church like you guys are. It can be a downside because you can actually shut it off so new people aren't allowed into the club. You have to be careful about that. But I got a feeling if you can get past that, 
God is going to do incredible things through you with that simple truth. Love God. Love your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for simple. We need simple. We're trying to do our taxes right now. Simple would be good. And, you know, it's it seems so weird that we make it so complicated. We make it all so complicated. We, we create all these rules and regulations, and God knows how many denominations we've created, and all about power, trying to figure out who's got the power, who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. And, and you kind of just blow it all away and say, um, it's simple, folks. It's simple. I think that we, we don't want to accept the simple because it's, it's hard. It's not easy. But give us the courage to do it, to love you to love the people you bring into our lives, no matter who they are or when you bring them. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.